Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 143 of the Independent Advisors podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. Good afternoon, Matt. How you doing, Mark? Good. We're at the end of Q1 of 2022, and I'm sure a lot of people are uh, very happy to see a transition into a new quarter. Yeah, I want to do like the gif from like Right. Done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I think that's everyone's feeling. Yeah. So um, before we begin, as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on March 30th. Uh, S&P 500 index up 5.22% for the month and down 3.45% for the year. The Dow up 3.94% for the month and down 3.05% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 8.03% for the month and down 6.55% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Index is up 2.04% for the month and down 6.74% for the year. Vanguard International ETF, X United States, up 1.17% for the month and down 4.5% for the year. The three-month T-bill uh, yield is sitting at 0.55%, the two-year Treasury yield at 2.29%, and the 10-year Treasury yield uh, sitting at 2.32%. So the only additional comments I want to make there, Matt, is people probably saw we did get a yield curve inversion with the two-year Treasury and the 10-year Treasury. Um, we've discussed that a little bit uh, in previous episodes recently. I think it was uh, episodes number 140 and 141, so people can look back um, and listen on what we had to say there. But I'm sure we're going to have more information um, coming out about this later. And I think the thing that's concerning for people is that this is typically a leading indicator of a recession on the horizon. Um, however, short term on average, uh, market performance actually tends to be pretty strong um, on average again. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, we'll get into this over the next couple of weeks here with some more data for everybody. But this just happened, I think it was two days ago, and it was just really quick in the middle of the day and it came back to normalization. So um, just wanted to throw that teaser out there that we're probably going to be talking about this uh, over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I got, I'm going to be talking about uh, government debt overall. And my only uh, 10 seconds on it is, is as much as the Fed has manipulated the bond markets, there's no other true comparison to look back and say, this is what happened. Did it did it did or did not cause a recession? Mm -hmm. I just think the Fed's hands in the bond market is so manipulated. Uh, this is uncharted territory. Hands in the cookie jar. So this, to speak. Is, this is their first time relatively. This is the first data set of this. All right. All right. Well, I'll let you uh, roll on with headlines and current events from this week. Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing this week is employment, right? And so why is employment such a big deal? In my opinion, it has to do with supply chain and inflation. So at the beginning of the month, uh, we tend to get jolts. Now, jolts comes out right at the end. And so what you're seeing is job openings, 11.3 million job openings um, are right now in the U.S., to give some comparison, uh, back in February, it was 10.9 million. In January, 10.56 million openings. And back in December, 11.03. So still a significant amount of job openings. And people don't hire unless their business is doing good, mm -hmm. right? And we got to remember that. This is a good indicator that economic activity is happening. Yeah. The next thing is, this comes out tomorrow, is the March jobs report. This comes out on April 1st, 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time, Mark. The consensus forecast on Wall Street is a gain of 450,000 new jobs for the month of March. Again, why is this significant? In my theory, the more employment normalizes, it's going to help supply chains, and that will help bring down inflation. 
The numbers that we saw uh, for February was 678,000 gain. In the month prior to that, 467. So if we can keep coming in at above 400,000, that is definitely a bullish piece of data, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Back to you. Yeah. So um, tweets, articles, and research from the week. The first one I had was just a simple quote that I uh, saw by Benjamin Graham back in the day. And Ben Graham was a, a famous investor back in the day, for those who, who don't know. I um, think he was a pretty heavy value guy um, yep. back in the day. But he said, the market is a pendulum that forever swings between unsustainable optimism and unjustified pessimism. Love it. So, you know, even just over the past couple of weeks, a couple of weeks ago, everybody thought the world was going to end. But now people are turning up because the market has been good over the past couple of weeks. Right. Yeah, say that again, because a month ago. The world, the investment world, was, everyone was in the dumps. It was bad. Yeah. So, and it just goes to show you how quick this happens in today's day and age with social media and you know news at our fingertips that people could be overly bearish and then All the just hop headlines right back on the bullish train a couple of days later. So X Y Z saw this article saying the market was going to go down another thirty percent. Right. So I just thought that this was the most perfect explanation of how markets work and how human emotion plays into uh, investments in the economy and your own financial situation. So why this is important is what we preach on this podcast. Stick with your plan. Yep. You know, do not make decisions based upon the headlines you're seeing. Right. Right. Um, Next was a article in the Wall Street Journal written by Julia Carpenter on March 17th titled what the Fed's interest rate increase may mean for you. Um, So I'm going to read a little bit, uh, a couple of things from this article, because I think, you know, one of the biggest questions that we're seeing now is, well, you know, the Fed's raising interest rates. So how is that going to affect my personal life? And what's the timeline for that happening? Because some of this stuff is immediate and some of it's kind of delayed. Okay. So um, she starts off by saying this widely expected interest rate hike increases the federal funds rate between 0.25% and a half a percent. When interest rates go up or down, the resulting changes in other rates impact the way we borrow money, but also how we save money. Frustrated house hunters, for example, have already seen mortgage rates increase in recent months. Rising rates mean home buyers will pay a little more each month in mortgage payments. The way mortgage prices are set is based largely on the yield of the 10-year U.S. government bond. This rate is used as a benchmark for all different types of loans, including mortgages. As the Fed has signaled higher rates, the 10-year yield has moved higher. This has, in turn, pushed the average rate on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage to over 4%. And just today, Matt, I saw that I think the average uh, mortgage rate was like 4.7, I want to say. Sounds about right. I, I was going to say that, by the way. I saw that today. And so. remember, the rates are moving higher on that 10-year in anticipation. anticipation. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. All right. Um, so, and this is the first time it's been at that level since 2018. Um, and a year ago, the average was uh, 3.05% on a 30-year fixed, according to Freddie Mac. Um, I don't mean to step on your toes because I know you're talking about a lot of housing I love stuff. It. Later, I love but, it. Keep going. Um, over the past two years, low rates and low inventory have fueled a white hot housing market with skyrocketing home values leading to fierce bidding wars. As of January, the medium sales price of a single family home stood at 357000 up nearly 16% year over year, according to the National Association of Realtors. Moving on to high-yield savings accounts and CDs. Right now, banks have little incentive to raise interest rates on saving accounts. During the pandemic, Americans have been hoarding cash, leading to the highest personal savings rate since World War II, then edging down in recent months. The traditional view is that rising interest rates help savers, but most people who are savvy are in a broader range of assets. For your average person who has just have excuse me, for your average person who just has their money in a savings account, you make nothing. The interest rates offered on savings accounts and many certificates of deposits often move with the federal funds rate. And again, the federal funds rate, Matt, is the rate at which commercial banks borrow and lend their extra reserves to each other overnight. Correct. 
Um, according to the FDIC, the average annual percentage yield on a one-year CD, you want to guess what it is? A one-year CD mm -hmm. right now? 1.1. 1. 0.14%. On a one-year? Mm-hmm. That doesn't even equate to what I'm trying to peg it off treasuries. Yeah, that's what they say in this article. I don't know. Bank, banks are getting away with highway robbery. Right, exactly. Um, Goldman Sachs uh, Marcus High Yield Savings Account is now offering 0.5%. Stop the presses. Yeah, right. As interest rates go up, CDs will go up, which should perhaps help savers a little bit more. But again, this stuff is delayed and it's not going to take to effect. And if banks don't have to, they're not going to do it. That's right. <laughs> um, next is auto loans. So when you take out a car loan, um, that loan has a fixed interest rate pegged to the treasury yields. Um, this means that the rise in interest rates shouldn't bring any surprises for those who have already secured their fixed rate. So if you're already, you know, financing a car, you're not going out Doesn't to get matter. a new one, not going to matter. For those looking to buy in the hot car market, make sure you do the math on financing a vehicle. In addition, keep in mind that individual car dealers and lenders can charge different amounts for your specific new car loan. According to Bankrate, the average rate on a five-year new car loan was... What do you think? Three and a half. Close. 3.98% the week of March 10th. Okay. Credit cards. It's always an extra, uh, an excellent time to pay down, pay down credit card debt, but this makes it only more costly to hold credit card debt. According to Wallet Hub's March report of more than 1,500 credit card offers, the annual percentage rate for those with good credit was 18.98%. Huh. Yeah. An increase in rates can sometimes affect the credit card annual percentage rate or APR. So, I mean, pretty much in any interest rate environment, Matt, it's a good idea, in my opinion, to create, pay down that debt. Because like they're saying, it, you know, you're going to have a credit card that has 18%. So, you know, you'd never want to have to have that snowball into significantly higher amounts sure. of debt. And it happens quick once you get up into ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars of credit card debt, that oh, is yeah. a huge chunk if you're not paying on that. Absolutely. Um, last but not least, uh, student loans. For those with federal loans, interest rates have already been set for the 2021-2022 school year. Every May, the interest rate for federal student loans is set according to the 10-year Treasury note auction. These rates are fixed for the entirety of the loan. Private student loans either charged fixed rates, which stay consistent, or variable rates, which can increase or decrease depending on the institution you borrow from. Um, so that's one thing to consider that it's not too popular, I don't think, that people have variable student loan rates. I don't see it. I haven't seen it often. I haven't either, but just be careful and check to make sure yours isn't because yeah. if that's the case and you have a private loan, you know, over the next year or two, depending on what happens with the Fed, you know, those rates could jump significantly. Yeah, they, they, could, they could reset higher. So um, just wanted to get that out there and share that because I read that uh, last week. And that was a good article in the journal. People were going to be asking about that. Um, last thing I have, Matt, was a tweet by Mike Sicardi. Uh, he's a CFA. Uh, this was back on March 11th. So I know that you've talked about this in the past, Matt, but he said that the total U.S. bond market is almost in correction ter territory. That's rare. It's the third worst downturn in its 19-year history. And this is uh, the aggregate, the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index, okay? Which used to be the popular Lehman Brothers yes. Aggregate Bond Index before they went under. RIP to Lehman. Um, so, yeah, the third worst downturn in its 19-year history. It's about 10% off of their highs. This is exactly why I brought this topic up in December is, we you know, we've been in a bond bull market for a decade, and the perception among a lot of investors is, eh, I'm going to buy a bond. I can't lose money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you buy these bond mutual funds that have, you know, long durations, and they do have the ability to lose principal. And that's why I wanted to bring it to people's attention. doesn't mean that you shouldn't have bonds. But I just wanted to bring it to people's attention that the perception is I can lose money in stocks, but I can't lose money in bonds. That's completely false. Right. So it almost makes you question, you know, how do you define, you know, what the risk level is in an account anymore? Because traditionally, like you said, bonds are bonds are safe, right? Yeah. They're not going to lose money. Yeah. 
And this is why you keep seeing headlines, death of the 60-40 portfolio, 60% stock, 40% bonds. Right. Is because now you have bonds correlated with stocks. Right. And so the reason normally you'd put bonds in with the the stocks is to have uncorrelated assets, one zigs, one zags. Mm Mm-hmm. And then when you have these periods of stress, like February and January this year, where they're all going the same direction, everyone's looking at each other being like, this isn't working. Right. So, I mean, if you really want to, you know, be really hedged, I guess the answer is to have a a higher cash position in a less risky or more conservative account, at least right now, because you're not you're not getting that protection from bonds that we did in the past. Absolutely. So absolutely. I'm just glad we're, we're talking about it because a lot of people are not. Right. Anything uh, else? No, over to you. I know I always say this. I got some good content this week. <laughs> it's juicy. Matthew Jessup has never had bad content. <laughs> it's not me, okay? <laughs> I'm not going to have to do something. If I'm going to do something, I go all in. All right, let's hear it. Here we go. First is going to be sector performance during rate height hike cycles. Why am I talking about this, Mark? There's so much concern that in a rising interest rate environment, It's going to completely derail stock performance. And I want to challenge that narrative. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is data from Bespoke Investment Group. And this data was uh, generated on March 21st. This chart, which is on our show notes, summarizes the median forward performance of the S&P 500 index and the various sectors underneath the market following Federal Reserve rate hike cycles since 1994. In 1994, that's when the Federal Reserve started announcing its policy decisions on the day of the meeting. Mm -hmm. Okay. I want to pause for a second. Will you explain to listeners what is a sector? Yeah. So if you look at it, you know, stocks are categorized into different sectors and different industries, right? So there's really like 11 main sectors in in the US at least. So that's things like technology, consumer discretionary, utilities, financials, materials, industrials, healthcare, those type of things. Exactly. And within those sectors, there's sub industries. So within the technology sector, there's a software industry, there's a semiconductor industry. And then once you get down to the industries, there's stocks within those industries, right? Perfectly put, perfectly put. So what this chart does is it includes the frequency mark in which the S&P and each sector experienced positive returns over a one month, three month, six month, and one year period. For the analysis, rate hike cycles were defined as periods where the Federal Reserve hiked rates following a period of cuts or no prior rate hikes in the previous 12 months. The periods fitting this criteria since 1994 was February of 94, March 97, June of 1999, June of 2004, and December of 2015. I'm going to start first with the S&P. When you look six months out after the first rate hike, on average, S&P's up 6.4%. One year out, on average, up six. Completely derails the narrative, rising interest rates derail stock performance. Mm -hmm. So I wanna throw that out there. If you start looking at sectors, it's pretty interesting. So, you know, technology, the largest sector of the S&P 500, one year after the first rate hike, on average, up 21.6%. I'm not trying to sit here and elude that tech's going to be up 21% over mm-hmm. the next year. But I'm giving you a stat in the last four rate hike cycles. It was positive by double digits. Right. And then the other and the, the top two performers, you know, performance looking out one year after the first rate hike is technology and energy. Yes. <laughs> right? Technology and energy right now. And what were the worst? Worst actually surprised me. Um, it was industrials, materials financials. So this whole narrative on Wall Street is you buy banks in a rising interest rate environment. Why? Their margins get better. What's happened to banks so far this year? It's been bad. It's been bad. What happened to that narrative? I yeah, thought it always works that way. Yeah. And that's where you have to throw out. I'm being facetious for know, those that can't see me on video. You, know, <laughs> you have to, you got to throw out the, you know, economic 
college books that you read, right? So another example of this was, you know, when when President Biden got into office, everyone thought that, you know, green energy was going to go gangbusters. And it was the complete opposite. You have all these traditional energy companies killing green energy companies right now. And another example was the Biden administration, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, they lifted tariffs on steel. And after they did it, steel stocks went gangbusters the next week. So it's like people are like, this doesn't make sense. And yeah, that's the answer. A lot of the times the market doesn't make the sense. The old school playbook is is not working right now. Yeah. You know, um, so it's not it's not like you can't look at it and be like, if this happens, then that's going to happen. It's not yes. how it works. Yes. So I just want to point that out. Just because the Fed's starting to raise interest rates does not instantly spell doom and gloom for the market. Mm -hmm. My last point is one month after the first rate hike, on average, S&P's down 3.2 percent. Okay. So initially bad. As time goes on, six months later, one year later, it's normal. Okay. All right. My next piece is, and I love this one. How common are 5% corrections for the S&P 500 index? This is a piece of research from Compound Advisors I got last week, and it goes back to the March 2009 low, okay? There have been 27 instances of a 5% or more correction since the low after the great financial crisis. Why am I highlighting this? Guess what, people? Corrections are normal. Mm -hmm. And going back to 09, on average, there's at least two a year. Mm -hmm. And on this sheet, the average decline going back to that period, if you pull it up on our show notes, is 7.6%. And then the other thing I love about this is Compound put in here the quote-unquote reasons for the correction. And the reason I think this is beneficial is we need to put ourselves in the position of thinking, what was going on in the market at that time? What was causing that sell-off? Because the reasons for the sell-offs in the future, Mark, are going to be different. But I feel the outcomes are not going to be. Mm -hmm. Example, you go back to 2015, really tough period. You had Greece defaulting on their debt. Chinese stock market was crashing. Emerging market currencies were a mess falling oil. You had saber rattling by North Korea. At that time, peak to bottom sell-off was 15%. That was a nasty one. Mm -hmm. You had the COVID sell-off right when COVID hit, February 19th through March 23rd, 35.4% in a little bit over a month, right? Mm -hmm. In the middle of that, we had the podcast going. We were, we were speaking the truth, okay, at that time. Now, I think this is applicable because when is the next 5% correction going to come? I don't know. Mm -hmm. But you know what I do know is that they're going to come, and on average, at least twice a year. Right. And we have to be prepared for that. We have to know that it's part of the sacrifice you make by investing in the stock market. Yeah. And I think, you know, this year it just, you know, it feels worse because it all came within the first quarter of the year. So that that scared people. And and again, we haven't haven't had a good sell-off like this since COVID, really. And remember, when the sell-offs come and you have the reasons for the sell-off, the feeling is it's different this time. This could really derail the market. Mm -hmm. it, you're, that's always gonna happen. Yeah. All right. Yeah, this is a good a good chart to reference. Great chart. And I'm going to remember this 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 podcast 143 because we're going to reference this chart for people down the road. Mm -hmm. Got two more items. Concern about the bond market. That's the title of this topic. I got a um, a chart from Compound Advisors from Charlie and he posted this and it shows U.S. total assets held by Federal Reserve Banks. And we are sitting at roughly $9 trillion of bonds on the balance sheets of the Federal Reserve. Why is this concerning for me? Once the Fed begins to reduce its size of its balance sheet, in essence, get rid of printed money, okay? They're supposed to discuss this more at their next coming meeting. And that next meeting, end of April is when it's going to be. And I just want to bring this to people's attention that as the Fed is no longer going to be, say, buying bonds at the rate they were in the past, that could also put some upward pressure on yields. 
Yeah, exactly. And typically, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is too, or at least in the past decade, when the Fed has began to uh, reduce the assets on their balance sheet, it's typically not great for stocks, yeah, right? It's correct. To take um, liquidity out of the system. Right. So yeah, if you, I mean, I'd like to see this chart plotted against like the performance of the S&P 500 when, you know, they're expanding the balance sheet and when they're, de when they're reducing when they're unwinding. It. Yeah. Because yeah. a lot of the time it was like, yeah. And in, in 2015, that's when they started to, you know, to, to unwind their balance sheet. And there were some rocky roads between, you know, 2015 and 2016. And it really impacted emerging markets. Mm hmm. You know, it really did. I mean, in our in our global interconnected economy. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's something to watch out for as well. You know, if they start, you know, unwinding their balance sheet too quickly, you know, short term, there could be weakness in equity prices. The message for our listeners right now, it's not just the headline rate that's going to matter. Mm -hmm. But they see, oh, the interest rates got raised by a quarter of a point. There's more behind the scenes. Right. All right. My last thing, and this is where I'm going to spend the majority of my time. I'm going to talk about U.S. real estate. Now, I'm going to start this off with, I don't consider myself an expert in real estate or real estate prices. That's not my forte. But because it makes up a portion, a good portion of someone's net worth, usually, I would at least want to bring up the topic, and I'm going to specifically discuss data. And I want your feedback on the data. And of course, I'll give you my opinion. But I want to talk about data first. Okay. Okay. First piece of data, also from Compound Advisors on March 21st, it shows a chart of the 30-year fixed mortgage rate and referencing Freddie Mac going back to 2019. In May of 2019, the average interest rate on a 30-year fixed, 4.14%. COVID hits, rates go through the ground, hit a low of 2.65% in December of 2020. Fast forward to today, we're increasing quickly. You mentioned it already, 4.7%. This chart only goes to two weeks ago, and it was at 4.16 on this chart. Mm -hmm. Okay. Why is this important? It hurts affordability. When you have people who are looking to buy a house, they go to the bank, they go to the mortgage broker. We had Matt Edwards on the podcast uh, several months ago. He's a mortgage broker. Mm -hmm. They're going to look at someone's debt to income ratio, and then the mortgage broker or bank is going to say, your affordability, you can afford this much in a house. When this rate goes up, guess what happens? You can't afford as much of a house. Mm -hmm. Next, housing starts. No one is talking about this right now. Housing starts are now at their highest level since 2006. And what happened in 2007 and 2008? Yeah, I think we all know. So I want to throw it out there that the perception that inventory is going to continue to be this lean is not necessarily accurate. Mm -hmm. Okay. So other things, and this is some verbiage I got from the research of compound advisors I'd like to share. We now have the same mortgage rate going back to May 2019, like I mentioned before, but since May of 2019, the median price of a new home mark is up over 35%. Went from an average of 313,000 at that time to over 423,000 at this time. And the result is a substantial decline of affordability and incomes have failed to keep up with the pace of inflation and home prices. Yeah. And it just, I feel, I feel horrible for people that are first time home buyers right now. Cause that's just, this just sucks for them. <laughs> the situation's it, horrible. It does. And so before I, I, I finish up, I got one last thing I saw just today on Bloomberg, the title of the article in Bloomberg says soaring mortgage rates in us dent demand for vacation homes. Well, that clickbait is just, I was salivating. I had to <laughs> click it. So then I went into it and I got actually some pretty good data. It said this, and I quote, vacation home demand peaked in March of 2021, says Redfin, who they were quoting, who has data on real estate prices. This was two months after Freddie Mac's average 30 year mortgage rate hit a record low of 2.65% that I just mentioned. Borrowing costs have shot up as of right now, 4.7%. It goes on to say this, would-be buyers of vacation homes face another potential obstacle mark 
a fee increase ranging from an additional one to 4% on second home loans by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. This is new. This could tack on as much as 12,000 to 300,000 on the mortgage payable upfront or rolled into the loan. So right now you actually have Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae saying, there's some more risk out there. We're going to be compensated for that risk. Mm-hmm. And so just because you see the interest rate now is 4.6, 4.7, and you want to buy a second home, that's the, that's the rate you get for a primary residence. Mm-hmm. That's not the rate you get for a vacation home. Right. Now, all this matters. More inventories hitting the market. Rates are up. Those are major headwinds for real estate prices. Yeah, exactly. And that's what you know people have been saying for the past year or two. They're like, you know, prices are too high. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. But if you don't get that crash in prices like we did in 07 or 08, you're going to end up paying more because interest rates are going up. Yep. And I'm going to I'm giving the same advice I gave for the last two years when someone says something to me about this. Matt, what do you think? I look at them and I say, if you're going to be in the house for a decade or more, the price does not matter. If you Mm -hmm. can afford it, you like it, you do it. Mm -hmm. If you're thinking you're going to buy this property and try to flip it two, three, four years later and try to time that, that's a risky proposition. Mm -hmm. And that's the same response I have today. Yeah. My advice has not changed. Yeah. So, you know, just to kind of conclude this for, for people, what is, what is going on right now? Mortgage rates are going up, but inventory is also going up, which is big because it hasn't been that way for a while. That's what is, what these home builders are trying to do to combat these higher, uh, well, they're not doing it directly for that, but what's going to happen is they're, they're trying to, um, take advantage of these higher prices. Right. And so it's just, I think inventory needs to keep substantially climbing to solve the the housing price issue in in this country right now. But um, but again, those are the two big things that are happening, which is good, because if if mortgage rates were going up and inventory was going down, that would be pretty bad for a lot of people, especially again. And going back to the first time homebuyer thing, it's like those people are, are getting the short end of the stick right now. Absolutely. I mean, only other topic I could bring up in this is roughly one third of all homes in the U.S. are owned by institutions or owned by investors. And if all of a sudden you have this asset class turn in price, you could have some of those sellers enter the market Mm -hmm. and that could increase supply. And what happens when supply increases? Prices go down. Right. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it's something I would be watchful. Okay. right. Absolutely. Back to you. Anything else before we turn to the financial planning topic of the week? No, I'm going to uh, sign off for the day. We're going to bring in Taylor again to discuss the financial planning topic of the week with you. Um, And then I think we have a couple of listener questions. So I will see everybody next week, but uh, we'll bring in Taylor. All right. So uh, I will be addressing a uh, a user's uh, question here at the end. And this uh, question um, was from Tim, correct, Jenna? This one's from Dennis, and I will address Tim's next week. Got it. All right, Taylor. So um, welcome back. Uh, Taylor, what topic do you have for our listeners this week? Yeah, so I'm going to be talking about average retirement income for 2022. Okay. Because I came across this article that had some statistical data, and I just thought it was super interesting. So I just wanted to share that. Let's do it. So the article I read was on a site called newretirement.com, and it's called Average Retirement Income for 2022. How do you compare? So the Boston College Center for Retirement Research publishes the National Retirement Risk Index, and that's updated every single year. And this index measures the share of American households that are at risk of being unable to maintain their pre-retirement standard of living. According to their most recent analysis, 50% of retirees in 2021 were at risk of not having enough income. That's a drastic number. Yeah, I mean, it's really high, but unfortunately, when I read this, I wasn't super surprised just because most people don't have an advisor to talk to, you Good know, point. about things that Good are going point. on. Good point. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, lots of people just don't have a lot of help and I think they rely on social security and that's yep. just their mindset. Yeah. So the U.S. Census Bureau came out with some data that says the mean income for Americans over the age of 65 is $71,446, and the median income is 46360 Now, these numbers may seem relatively healthy, but retirement income falls dramatically as you age. For households aged 75 and older, the mean income is 57550 and the median income is 36925 So when I read these numbers, I thought that the mean seemed decent. I mm -hmm. thought, okay, that's enough to get you by. But yeah. then I kind of looked at that median income and how I thought about it was if you take 100 households, you know, 50% of those people age 75 and older are only living on 36,000 a year. Yeah. And that's super low. It is. And I'd be curious to, you know, what I see with in real life with our, with our client base say is, you know, first 10, 12 years of retirement, people tend to be more active. They tend to be spending a good amount of money because they're traveling. And it's that middle portion, which on average is in their 70s, where they're healthy enough to where they don't have a lot of medical bills, but they're not active like they used to be. They're not spending as much money. Mm -hmm. And so you wonder if like maybe these figures might have been manipulated by, you know, the fact that they're just not spending money and they're not taking, mm -hmm. they're not realizing investment gains or taking withdrawals mm -hmm. from retirement accounts. You never know. Right. And you have to consider all of the outliers as well. That's why I'm glad they provided the mean and the median. Good point. I thought that was, that was really it's helpful. helpful. Mm-hmm. So this article also included the top four sources of retirement income. This will be good. And just gave some recommendations on how to boost each of them. Okay. So the first one is Social Security. Among elderly Social Security beneficiaries, 50% of married couples and 71% of unmarried individuals receive 50% or more of their income from Social Security. That's substantial. It's a lot. Um... And, you know, Social Security was never meant to be a 100% income replacement. Correct. It was meant for more of a, an assistance for people who needed it. Mm -hmm. And I just think now people just rely on it, you know, because it's a guaranteed benefit that you have when you retire. That's right. So I don't think people consider saving as much because, you know, they have guaranteed monthly income. Yeah. And the only thing you can really do to maximize that benefit is just postponing when you take those benefits until age 70, because I know from ages 62 to 70, every single year that you delay it, it increases by 8%. Correct. Correct. And so, you know, a lot of times people are deciding, hey, when I retire, I'm automatically going to start Social Security. And depending upon your health, family history, your perception of longevity, because it is an educated guess, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it makes sense for you to take a little bit more withdrawals from your personal investments and postpone taking Social Security till a later age to get that higher income for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely think that's a consideration. And just so people understand, this is something that a financial planner could help them do, can help them analyze that data and help them make a more informed decision rather than just, I'm retiring, mm -hmm. I'm going to take it immediately. Yeah. You want to add anything to that? Yeah. I mean, if you have, you know, your statement available, you can break down those different ages and what that social security retirement income would look like. Yep. And then kind of compare that to the assets you have invested and see where, you know, that supplemental income will come from. And I think, Taylor, people tend to forget that even when they look at those differences, they're not computing in their heads or on paper the future cost of living adjustments mm -hmm. that will compound against those two numbers. Mm -hmm. So in simplistic, very simplistic, if someone's going to be offered 1500 bucks a month at 65, but $2,000 a month at age 70, you have to think about the compounding effect of those two numbers with all the future cost of living adjustments. Yep. And the numbers could be oh, very starkly yeah, different. Because those adjustments are made every single year. Every single mm -hmm. year. 
So the second most popular source of income in retirement would be from retirement accounts. Mm -hmm. According to the most recent Transamerica Retirement Survey, 62% of high-earning workers expect their primary sources of income to come from retirement accounts such as 401ks, 403bs, IRAs, and other savings. And the three things that you can really do to boost these accounts are just maxing out your contributions, if you're 50 or older, making those catch-up contributions, or if you're near retirement age and you just need some more time, you know, mm -hmm. work longer. I mean, you can always invest more aggressively, but a lot of times employer-sponsored plans are more restrictive when it comes to the investments. And like I mentioned earlier, not everybody has an advisor. It's true. Mm -hmm. And they don't have access to that advice even through their employer-sponsored plans. Mm -hmm. So I think in general, you know, just making those max contributions is what most people, you know, could try to do. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. The third most popular source of income would be pensions. And the Pension Rights Center reports that one out of three older adults have retirement income from pension. But this number is trending further downward. And when I read that, because I do know pensions are becoming less popular over time. Yeah. And I know that, you know, Social Security may not be around, you know, for a super long time either. So what happens when, you know, pensions are fully gone and Social Security? Yeah, you know, it's a great point. I mean, what's happening is a lot of these pensions are not exactly fully funded. Mm -hmm. And the concern is if you have a company go under and, and um, it could be a union, it could be a company. If, if all of a sudden they don't have enough money to, to pay the pension, it gets turned over to an entity called the PBGC, which is the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. It's a subsidiary of the U.S. government. And literally what they do is they'll take whatever money is left in that pension and they'll go back to the pensioners and say, we can pay you 70 cents on the dollar. And it literally changes overnight. Mm -hmm. And that's a tough thing is that the perception, Taylor, is that pension is guaranteed. That's not true. Yeah, no, not always. And the only thing that you can really do to, you know, boost that pension income, I guess, is just making sure that you're taking or selecting the right options when you go to retire because every employer is differently. You know, a lot offer lump sums. Maybe some don't. Uh, maybe some offer partial lump sums. But you know, everyone's situation is so individualistic and a partial lump sum may be advantageous for one person, but not for the other. Yeah. Then you have the choices of for the remaining or all of it. Do you take the single life annuity mm -hmm. just on the uh, previous, you know, on the person's life? Do you protect a spouse or a loved one by getting some sort of survivor benefit? Mm -hmm. You know, that's a very complex decision. Mm -hmm. And go back to what you said before not everyone has access yeah. to professional advice. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's even tough for us sometimes internally. We have internal debates when we're discussing a client situation and what makes the most sense, mm -hmm. right? And so imagine that on an individual level that doesn't do what you and I do. Yeah, because, I mean, a lump sum at retirement looks pretty nice, but, you know, say somebody doesn't have you know, any investment accounts and they take that lump sum instead of doing that monthly benefit, that's not yeah, a good that's idea. Yeah, right. that's right. Or, or, or they take the lump sum and say, listen, I'm going to invest it and take systematic withdrawals. Mm -hmm. What happens if they're not disciplined and they take too much and they start digging yep. into the principal? I mean, there's a lot of factors there at play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, that's just one example. Yeah, I'm glad you're, you're mm -hmm. bringing this up. So what's the fourth one? Um, the fourth one is just working in retirement. So, okay. you know, if you do need extra money after you retire or you just have so much free time. Yeah. Um, that's the fourth place that a lot of people receive their income. So before the pandemic, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that increasing numbers of people over 65 and even over age 75 would be remaining in the workforce. And a report from the Transamerica Center for Retirement Studies found that 57% of workers plan to still work in retirement. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. I'm happy for them. I mean, you know, ultimately, 
I have a you know we have a lot of clients that 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 work in retirement mm-hmm. part time. And, you know, for a lot of these people, it's, you know, how they stay healthy, they stay active, mm-hmm. they have their social networks, they make extra income. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, again, I, I want that to be if we do proper planning, I want that to be something that's optional. I'm doing it because I want to not because mm-hmm. I financially need to do it. But, yeah. you know, again, I, I think that that number is going to stay up there, Taylor, I think in good times or bad, I think you're going to see people who are going to want to stay productive one way or another. Yeah. It could be work, could be volunteering. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I think more people work during retirement just because they need something to do. Yep. Maybe not necessarily because they financially need it. But I think it's a mix. Bingo. I do think mm-hmm. it's a mix. I do. Yeah, but no, I mean, reading through this article, I just I thought it was super interesting. And I think the bottom line is that you shouldn't always rely on Social Security. And you really need to focus on investing early and not waiting till last minute because... You know, once you retire, you pretty much have a set fixed income that you have for the rest of your life. I love it. And, and, and listeners and, and those viewing, I mean, you can reach out to Taylor if you have specific questions. Um, she does all of our, our planning work here for our clients and our practice. She does a phenomenal job. And I really appreciate you being a part of these financial planning topics. I know people enjoy listening to you and you always come with good content. Thanks. Yeah, I enjoy it too. Uh, we actually have two questions. Can you hang with me and I might get your feedback? Yeah. Okay. So Jenna, I did find the one from Tim so I can address it. Okay. So I'll start with Tim's. So this question is from our listener, Tim. Uh, Timothy asked, how does the secure act passed by Congress affect our IRAs? So here's what I want to bring up Taylor. Um, what I believe Timothy is alluding to is the uh, house, not the Senate, but just the house passed the SECURE Act 2.0, okay? It can still be revised, obviously, and it still has to go through the Senate. I'm going to cover a couple of the highlights of the House bill. Okay. And I want to say it one more time. This is not finalized, but this is what the House passed, Mm -hmm. okay? So here we go. First, one would require employees to automatically enroll eligible workers into a 401k when they start employment, Taylor, at a 3% contribution rate, which would increase annually by 1% until they get to 10% of their pay. Employees could opt out or select a different contribution amount. Businesses with 10 or fewer employees or less, um, or less than three years old, would be excluded from this mandate. I like this rule because so many people start and if it's just defaulted, it forces them in the plan and they get going, mm-hmm. especially younger people. Mm-hmm. Okay. The next change that's in the house bill is it would make changes to how much savers can contribute if they're near retirement, Taylor. It says this individuals age 62, 63 and 64 could make catch-up contributions of $10,000 a year instead of $6,500. I like that. It's a big jump. That's a big jump, mm-hmm. and I like that they did that. If it were me, I would say 60 and above. Love the idea. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, here's the one that's going to affect Timothy. Okay? It could also, I'm sorry, it could, I apologize. If the House bill passes, it would also increase the starting age for required minimum distributions to age 73 this year from 72, 74 in 2029, 75 by 2023, by 2032. So I'll say it again. This year, minimum RMD age will go up one year to 73. In 2029, it goes up another year to age 74. And by 2032, it goes up to age 75. So uh, that's a benefit because what happens is when people turn 72, whether they want to or not, Mm -hmm. they are forced by the IRS to take mandatory minimum withdrawals Mm -hmm. that are going to get taxed from their traditional IRAs or Mm pre-tax savings. Yeah. Yeah. I'm when I read over um, this article that you sent me about the the Secure Act 2.0, I really liked you know some of the things that you just listed off especially the rmd you being moved up yeah yeah this is pretty interesting so there's some other tidbits but i think the rmd thing is the biggest thing now uh timothy my kicker is this has to get through the senate we know they'll probably get their hands all over it and change it 
So that's where it stands as of right now. And Jenna, when we get anything final passed, we'll make sure we bring it up as a topic on the podcast. Okay. We got a second question, Taylor. This one's from Dennis. And he said this, I want to clarify something I read the other day pertaining to required minimum distributions from a traditional IRA. Is it true an RMD cannot be used as a Roth IRA conversion? Okay. I'll tackle this and then you feel free to add anything that you feel is pertinent. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Dennis, the way it works is you have to take your full required minimum distribution and pay tax on that. Anything above that minimum required distribution, let's say your number comes in at $20,000. Anything above 20,000 would be eligible for a Roth IRA conversion. Still considered income, you gotta pay tax on it either out of pocket or through money that's in that Roth account. I'm sorry, money that's in that traditional account. But still, you can only convert anything above the RMD amount. Mm -hmm. Anything, Taylor, you want to add? Yeah, I mean, the way I look at that question is, you know, when you take this required minimum distribution out of your IRA, there's still a contribution limit for your Roth because a contribution and a conversion are, are very different. Yes, they are. So if you have a $20,000 RMD, you take that out. Well, now you're subject to those contribution limits. That's, That's just right. how I thought about it. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so again, you know, it's possible you can still do uh, a Roth conversion, but it has to be above and beyond mm -hmm. the, that minimum RMD. Yeah, you could convert the rest Whole of your account if you, if you want to. Want to but if you're going to fall into maybe a high tax bracket mm -hmm. that year. You might want to spread it over multiple years, but yeah. in theory, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So Taylor, uh, anything else you'd like to end with on your part? No, I covered all right. it all. You always do a great job. So uh, we'll sign off. Uh, thank you, listeners, for being a part of our episode 143 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Mark and I will be returning next week. We hope all of you have a wonderful weekend. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessup wealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.